morning, guys. It's good to see you. Who's glad that, whoa, turn me all the way up, dude. How's that? Is that all right? Maybe a little more than that? Just a little bit? Uh, we're getting really close to the end of the semester. How's that feel? Yeah? Um, anybody have classes um, that they're struggling in a little bit? Yeah? Oh, yeah, LF, some people are saying LFBI classes. <laughs> On that note, you know the LFBI classes. Thanks for bringing that up, Alvaro. Uh, you know, D2, LFBI classes, uh, these things, these things are incredibly difficult. All right? Now, they require, they require um, I don't know, some wherewithal, right? Balance in your schedule, things like this. They are incredibly difficult. And so if the semester comes to a close in D2 and you're missing assignments, guess who's going to be asking for a list of who those people are? Yeah, that's right. So be, be warned. Be warned, leaders in ministry. Um, no, we're, we're glad that the semester's coming to a close because summer kind of represents, for Kaya anyway, a time of rest, uh, deepening relationships a lot of times. Uh, you know, what I've seen or observed is that during the summer, you guys have the ability and the capacity to kind of dig down really deep into your relationships. You have a little bit more free time. And that's really good. You can go and you can reach out to people that might not necessarily be in your classes uh, or at your job, but other places, people that you bump into the coffee shop or whatever it might be. And we need to be really careful even now about how God would use our summers that they wouldn't be spent idly, right? That they wouldn't be wasted, uh, because we do have to kind of determine uh, as a ministry that we, that we are going to really focus and have an agenda for our summer. Or you know you're going to end up watching a disgusting amount of Netflix. <laughs> and the summer will be over and we'll be back in session. And we will not have been prayerful or prepared for, uh, for the coming semester. Right? So let's be, let's be about it. I love you guys. It's really good to see you. It's good to be in the pulpit. I'm really thankful for all of the teaching lately. It has been very pointed and very good. <coughs> Connor made reference to Tuesday night's yeah. prayer meeting, which was really powerful. I was thankful to have Dan here. Uh, last week, uh, James was really good. It's just, it's like God is, or he orchestrates things. It's almost as though God orchestrates things. And he's been giving us messages that I think are very um, appropriate for where we're at right now as a ministry. And so we are going to be in Romans. All right, and so go ahead and turn to Romans 14. Believe it or not, we are going to cover the entire chapter of, of Romans 14 today. Wait a second. I don't believe it. Faith, right? Where's the faith? It's a doozy. It's a doozy. Um, but we're going to try to get through the entire chapter. I believe that we can do it. And, uh, but I'm coming at you, uh, so be ready for that. Uh, I, I believe that this message is going to be particularly challenging. Let's pray for the Lord to be with us and to speak through me because I don't want to waste anyone's time, and I, I can do that. I have the ability to do that, and uh, my opinions aren't important. It's God's opinions that are important, so let's ask him uh, to work through his word today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, thank you. Thank you that I have a voice today. And I have the capacity to preach and to teach. Um, 
But Lord, I want to I take a moment right now to say, uh, well, we are a ministry in need of you. We are a people in need of you. Uh, Lord, as, as Kaya, as the college and young adult ministry, um, there's a lot of things that are seeking to distract us. Um, there's a lot of people who, Lord, who are, um, have been or are currently riding the fence in terms of whether or not they're going to follow you. And, uh, and some people have, have, quite frankly, Lord, they've turned away. Um, they've been presented with truth, and, and Lord, they're not here this morning. And, uh, and Lord, that, that does damage us in our spirit, and uh, it is a burden that we carry. So, Lord, we want to give that to you, and we want to recognize that, Lord, you have not given up on those that we love and those that we care about that, that, uh, that, that still have things that they need to work through. And so, God, we just ask that you would extend your grace to them, uh, but, Lord, that you would do your work and that they would not um, be afforded the opportunity to simply walk away into the night, uh, but, Lord, you would bring them back into the day, that they would awake from their slumber and that they would choose to follow you. Uh, Lord, we ask for those of us who are burdened with family members, um, that, we, that we have family who, is, uh, who are far from you, um, that Lord, we'd be able to give that over to you, that we would be able to trust you, that we would be hopeful, uh, that the love in our heart that you've placed there would, would cause us and provoke us to hopeful thinking, not cynical thinking or pessimistic thinking, but, but prayers of hopefulness and devotion and faith. Um, there's no greater enemy to our faith uh, than cynicism. And uh, the father of cynicism, the, the father of lies is Satan. And so, God, we, we ask that you would cast him down and that the vain imaginations would pass, that we might see the light of who you are and recognize that every relationship, friends and family, even our foes, uh, Lord, that we could trust you with those things and that we would give them to you, knowing that you're a God that uh, is greater than our thoughts and our imaginations. God, use your word today. We're trusting you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, in, in the previous chapter, God taught us about the conduct of the believer as it concerns civil authority. I don't know if you can think that far back. So where we talked about civil authority and submission and obedience to those who are in authority over us. That was a few weeks ago now. And he's directed us to a lifestyle uh, and, a, and a consecration to living peaceably with all men. That's what the last chapter was about. We learned about what love should look like towards our brethren and what it means to dwell in unity. Now here in chapter 14, in a similar manner, we are encouraged to put aside our differences in order to prioritize unity. Prioritize unity. And as we know from previous teachings, uh, the church in Rome was truly diverse, right? We've talked about this, the diversity of the church in Rome. Okay, We know that, this, uh, that Rome was probably the largest city in the world at this time. It was made up of an eclectic diversity of people, right? just like who we see in this ministry right now. Okay, All different types of people. And really what the letter uh, to the church in Rome was about was about reckoning the fact that there was all these people with these different thoughts and these different backgrounds who needed to be unified and centered on the truth of the gospel and what the gospel intended them uh, for them to be and to become, right? And so that's what this letter is about. 
And Paul, as he's addressing the doctrines of our salvation, is at the same time addressing cultural differences, right? thought differences, heritage differences, prophetic differences between the Gentiles and the Jews and how they can come together. So on one hand, you have Jews who were raised under a set of laws and rules for holiness that impacted every aspect of their lives. The Gentiles, though, on the other hand, were raised in bondage, right, to, to a multiplicity of gods and false idols and false worship. You've got both of these backgrounds that are coming together, one from an immoral background, right, far from God, has no access to God the Father, and then this other background of people who are very religious but have neglected to follow God rightly. And in Jesus Christ, those walls of division have been divided. Both the Jew and the Gentile were met with a spiritual culture, uh, cultural shock, a spiritual culture shock when they came to faith in Christ. Each type of person bringing different convictions to the table. All right? Now, even in this room right now, I think that there's lots of different people with lots of different backgrounds, many different cultures who, have, who are coming in ministry, coming together, right, under the banner of Jesus Christ. And just like this church in Rome, this early, early church, I mean, we're talking about within a decade of Christ's resurrection, Paul is writing this. Just like this church, we are going to run into issues of culture and opinion, difference, difference of conviction, difference of, of, of predispositions, of thoughts. And we've got to figure out what we're going to do with that when those backgrounds seem to come in conflict with one another. Right? And that's what we're going to be addressing today. We're going to be addressing how differences can result in disunity and how we can prevent against that. It is certain that nothing is more threatening to the local assembly and more fatal, fatal to the mission of the church than when differences become divisions. And we can look, we, it doesn't take much thought or imagination. All we have to do is consider for a moment what the church looks like as a whole, what the bride of Christ looks like right now in contemporary Christianity. And recognize that differences have resulted in a lot of disunity. Now, by differences, I do not mean doctrine. I don't mean doctrine because doctrine is the lifeblood of the church. Any disagreements that arise over core doctrines, such as salvation, baptism, the Holy Spirit. okay, What we're talking about when we say the core doctrines, we mean the core truths of Scripture. What it means to be a human being. What sin is. What repentance is. The terms of salvation, these things ought not be compromised no matter what. Yeah. So when we're talking about differences, we're not talking about doctrine. Because if there's differences in doctrine, then we have to conclude that either we are to submit to God's word, or it's right that we part. It's right that we part. Okay? So, so what I mean by that is if, the, if we as a local assembly cannot agree on the simplicity of the truths of God's word, then it's okay that we part ways. If we can't unify, if we can't look at God's word, 
and come to the same conclusions in a way that allows us to move forward in ministry, then we should probably consider parting ways. But it's much more preferable, and I just want to make this clear, it's much more preferable that we sit down and we have conversation about what God's word says and we take time together to divide it rightly as brothers and sisters in Christ and come to the right conclusions so that we can move forward in ministry. Because the truth is, if we can't agree on what salvation is, then we can't disciple together. And if we can't agree on what the role of the Holy Spirit is, then it's going to be very difficult for us to disciple together. And so when we're talking about differences today, what we're talking about is those peripheral differences, the things that are affected by our cultural differences or even our personal convictions. Okay, and we're going to define these things more fully as we move on. What will we be, what we'll be uh, warning against today? What Paul's admonition is for us today is against divisions over differing liberties and convictions among the saints. What do we do when we differ in opinion as it concerns cultural inclinations and religious convictions? Okay? Um, and we're going to do something a little bit different. Because this passage weaves about a little bit in terms of its logic, I'm going to actually read the whole chapter to you. So you can't, right here, this is a moment where there's a good chance that my intro and the body of what I'm teaching today can be completely disconnected. I'm about to read God's word here. Okay, So I think it's appropriate that we focus in. We don't get dreary-eyed. right? Let's focus and let's see what the text says. And then we'll begin to divide. Can we do that together? I know it's different. uh, But I think we can manage. So bear with me. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 14. Alvaro, you ready? Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us therefore judge one another, uh, uh, let us not therefore judge one another any more. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. 
I know and am persuaded by the Lord that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat. For who, got, uh, for who Christ died, let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that, uh, for he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. See what I mean? It's a busy piece of text. And we're going to make sense of it, okay? This is a very logical text. And if you take the time to study it, there are great truths here. Now let's start very simply with what the problem is. There's difference and there's division in the church of Rome. So let's start there. The reality is this. The church at Rome was comprised of Gentiles and converted Jews. Those that had been Jews were trained up in the observances and ceremonies of their faith, affecting both what they chose to eat and how they kept their calendars. Even after accepting Christ and after being set free from the law, the observances of their, of their upbringing could not be easily switched off. Okay, so the, the problem is, for these Jewish believers, those who were confer- converted from Judaism, they struggled to simply abandon all of the traditions and cultures that they grew up with. It was difficult for them. They found it difficult when faced with some of these new ideas and these new biblical concepts to simply let go of the things that they grew up with. Does that make sense? At this point, the Jewish believers in Rome had not been fully instructed concerning the cancellation of the ceremonial law and therefore retained these practices. In other words, no one had taught them. No one had showed them. No one had discipled them. That that when Christ came and died and rose again, that he actually defeated the ceremony and and the, the religious nature of these laws. They just didn't know. And so they were weak and they were immature. Now, on the other hand, other Christians that better understood their liberty Okay, especially those Gentiles who were not encumbered by such things previously, right? It was very easy for them to accept their liberty in Christ and chose not to regard the old Jewish traditions. Does this make sense to everyone? So in other words, the new new converts that were Gentile in background, or even some Jews who understood their liberty, may have have, uh, um, chosen not to uh, adopt those Jewish traditions Because their knowledge afforded them not to. Their liberty afforded them not to. They didn't have to. They didn't feel encumbered by those things. Where there were some Jews that did. Does this make sense? So here's our key point. 
This is super important. Key point number one. Every church is a mixture of individual cultures, ideas, practices, and most importantly, varying maturities. Okay? Every single church, including this one, Midtown Baptist Temple, is a mixture. And I, and I believe if you're doing church right, this is particularly true. In other words, if church is functioning as a hospital for those who need Christ, it will constantly be inviting in immature believers of different backgrounds and different cultures. All right? If the church is what it's supposed to be, it will be a mixture of all these things. And we have to accept the fact that some of the, some of the time, there will be people who bring in their religious baggage with them. And the question is, how are we going to respond? Will those differences provoke in us who seem to be more knowledgeable? Will it provoke in us despisement or judgment or evil words or teaching that does more to frustrate than to provoke to righteousness? How are we going to continue to respond as people with different backgrounds come into our congregation. So let's look briefly at the two issues mentioned here by Paul. Can we do that? And we're going to use this as a platform to talk about this issue today. You ready? Eric? Eric's doing this thing. Eric does this thing. You guys don't know because Eric sits in the back where he mouths things while I'm preaching. And I never know what he's saying. I'm not sure if they're amens. But I'll be preaching and he'll be back there and be like, And I have no idea what he's thinking. I don't know if he's judging my preaching. I'm praying for you, brother. I got nothing to Okay, the spirit is moving. So let's look at the two issues mentioned here by Paul. First of all, concerning meats, verse 2. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Okay, we've got two different believers here. We've got believers who recognize and have knowledge that allows them to eat whatever they want. And then we have another group of people, because of their convictions and their weakness, choose to eat a particular diet that is based upon their tradition and their religious upbringing. Okay, now these, these were restrictions on eating that for the Jews had been carried over from their Judaism. But some believers in Rome knew that in the, in the freedom of Christ they had the liberty to eat all things. See, these were more knowledgeable Christians who were thankful that the ceremonial distinction of clean versus unclean had been done away with. Jump down to verse 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus, this is Paul speaking here, that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. To his conscience it is unclean. And that must be recognized. And that must be considered. And our graciousness and our love and our kindness and our patience, patience as those who are more knowledgeable must be applied. In other words, as far as Jesus is concerned, there is nothing in terms of meat that is restricted to eat. Okay? I remember, um, I remember in Bogota last year we went on a missions trip. Me and Tony Godfrey, who is the pastor in a church in Iola, um, Harvest Baptist of Iola. Um, we went to Bogota together to preach at a missions conference. And 
Um, as we got near the end of the trip, we had a little bit of free time, and we decided to ask some of the young people, because it's always the young people that are the most fun, right? I stayed with Paul. I stayed with Paul Clark, and Paul is old. This is Ileana's grandpa. This dude didn't want to do anything. Now, luckily, we got to spend evenings together and hang out and talk, but as far as going out and seeing the city, he wasn't that interested in showing me around, right? So we asked some of the young people, who were a little bit more flexible, to take us um, out to dinner, uh, to have a traditional Colombian meal, okay? And so we drove out, drove out to a, kind of a rural area. It was scenic. It was beautiful. It was a very small car. There was a lot of us packed into it. Uh, that was rough. I had claustrophobia. Like, I struggled with claustrophobia. Thank God I'm an overcomer <laughs> in this race. But, but at times, I still feel like a little closed in. But, okay, so we're in the car. We get out there. And we say, hey, guys, order us whatever, whatever the most traditional Colombian meal is. So they bring out a plate of varying meats. Yeah? And some of the meats were very acceptable to my palate. And other meats were not. And one meat in particular um, called, I wrote it down. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. What was it called? Morcia. Morcia? Morcia? Am I saying that right? It's blood sausage. Okay, now if you don't know <laughs> what a blood sausage is, it's basically congealed and cooked blood inside of a sausage tube. Okay, now, listen. They told me what it was, and I had watched enough of these like, like travel eating shows where I felt, good, I felt confident going into it. Uh, so I took a bite, and I looked at Tony. Immediately, I was the first to take a bite. And I looked at Tony like, no, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and I was mouthing to him. <laughs> now, Tony is, uh, he's, he's well-traveled, and so he had no fear, and he went into it. And he took the first bite, and he had determined that he liked it. Now, he's full of it. He did not like it. Okay? He, he said that he liked it. He was chewing it, and he was contemplating. And with that, like, like that fake smile, he said, oh, yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. Now, upon the second bite, though, he realized that it was the most hideous thing he'd ever put in his mouth. All right? Now, because I, I, wanted, I wanted to... I don't know. I wanted to be a local. So I, I took another bite, <laughs> hoping that the second bite would be better. And it was not. <laughs> okay, now check this out. So, <laughs> so we're like, hey, like, we're, and we're sharing the meal, we're sharing the food. And, and they're like, oh, pass that down here, right? So like, like the locals were, were saying that they were about it, okay? And guess what? They didn't eat the blood sausage either. <laughs> They pretended they nibbled at it, and they pretended they didn't like it either. Okay, I say all that to say this. For thousands of years, people have been be eating all kinds of things. People have been eating things like blood sausage. People, very desperate people in the world. And every culture has something like this, right? Right? Don't, I mean, don't you, in Kenya, and like, in, in wherever you're at in the world, there are things like this. Like, if you go down south, people are eating pig knuckles. 
Pigs don't have knuckles. <laughs> right? Find the knuckle. Right? And people eat things. Now, here's the beautiful thing about God. God is so big. That when Jesus Christ came into the world and died and rose again, God determined that things that people eat were no longer going to divide people from God. And that there weren't going to be clean and unclean meats anymore. And that people from every different tradition and background eating all different types of things were no longer going to be hindered by their traditions and their practices. But they get to come to God freely just like everyone else. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. This idea is affirmed in the revelation that Peter received in Acts. Acts 10, 9 says, On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went upon, up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him. And it had been a great sheet knit. Now, this is weird. How, why God did, did this way, I don't know. But this is a very particular type of vision here. Okay, so this is like this cloth, right? It's great sheet knit at the four corners, and it let down to the earth, wherein were all manners of four-footed beasts of the earth. And so within this cloth, he saw all these wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. You know, you know, in, in parts of Asia, they just they eat bugs like it's nothing. The street vendors just sell bugs. Just eat the bugs. Yeah, and you ate bugs, didn't you? Yeah. If they, if you, okay, here's my rule. If you deep fry anything, I'll eat it. I'll eat it. Right? I will eat anything deep fat fried. And I bet you I think it's good, no matter what. If they took the blood sausage and deep fat fried it, I bet you I would have liked it. So anyway, he sees all these different animals. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. Now, first of all, this is not a good practice. If the Lord speaks to you, do not respond with not so, Lord. But listen, this points out to us how difficult it was for a Jew to accept this idea that eating unclean things, this is something we see Peter struggle with again later on. You understand, this was not easy. It was not easy. He says, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is... Why am I moved by this right now? See, this is, this is the Apostle Peter, and he's weak <laughs> over food. He's weak. And he's so honest. And he says, I've never put anything like that to my lips. And the voice spake unto him again, uh, and it said, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou uncommon. Jump down to verse 28. And he said unto them, this is Peter now speaking, you know how that it, is, uh, that it is an awful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one, uh, one of another nation, but God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So he comes into knowledge. He comes into knowledge. And he begins to recognize that he has liberty to eat these foods, okay? It's a very simple thing. This isn't mind-blowing mind scripture here. But what we're pointing to is that there's these differences that the Jews are struggling with, and God has called these other foods clean. 
People can eat them. So the stronger Christians clearly understood this and they practiced accordingly. Eating what was set before them and asking no question for conscience sake. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27 talks about this. But on the other hand, the weaker brother or sister in Christ was perhaps unclear in his Christian liberty and perceived that certain foods were still unclean. And for their conscience sake, it would condemn them to eat such things. You guys with me? Okay. Now the other thing, the other point, the other issue, verse 5, concerning days. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. So for those who believed that they were still obliged to the ceremonial law, esteemed one day as more holy than another. Okay, Respecting and even advocating for the observance of the Passover, for Pentecost, new moons, and feasts of tabernacles, believing that those days were better than other days. And they followed strictly the regulations surrounding these holidays, binding themselves to those religious practices. But for those who knew that all these things were abolished and done away with in Christ, they valued every day the same. Every day was a God-given day. Every day was a day to proclaim the victory of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So there's a difference in, in terms of understanding and, and, and more importantly, knowledge. Right? As far as the Jewish holidays went, the liberated believer had no reason or obligation to even consider them. So this leads us to a conversation about weakness versus wickedness. Are you prepared? I don't really have a whole lot of slides. So you're going to have to take on this subject. So you're going to have to take quick notes because we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. Okay? Um, here, the apostle speaks of the distinction of meats and days as something that is in, indifferent. It's not important. It's not important. A matter of preference, not morality. A difference of preference, not morality. We must also make a distinction here between two different types of people. People who are weak and people who are wicked. Okay? So he presents the practice of esteeming meats and days as excusable. He says it's okay. It's not a big deal that these people are doing this. Okay? It's, not, it's no big deal. Now, they're weaker in terms of their knowledge and understanding of the liberty in Jesus Christ, but it's not a big deal. They're convicted about this issue. Then let them practice it the way they see fit. Let them, let them uh, uh, live in their weakness, and in time, that'll be corrected. But on the other hand, in the epistle to the Galatians, we read about the exact opposite issue arising. Have you guys ever read Galatians? Have you ever read this book? This book, this letter to the, the church in Galatia, is the angriest letter that Paul ever wrote. Okay? Now listen. It's so angry. And the issue at hand is that people who were knowledgeable, who should know better, and who knew the truth, who had been discipled, who had been trained to know these differences, were infiltrated by Judaizers who convinced them that they needed to go back to the ceremonial law. So what we're talking about is leaders 
People who knew better, that Paul spoke to face to face, who had been convinced that they needed to go back to immaturity. And that he calls wicked. So we have weakness, as exemplified by the Jews in Romans, in the, in the letter to the Romans, and we have wickedness on the part of the believers in Galatia. And the difference is knowledge. The difference is knowledge. The difference is in what they've been trained to believe. See, Paul charges them in Galatia that they've frustrated the design of God. That they've forgotten what true grace is. Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Check me out. But the Romans, they observed meats and days out of weakness. The Galatians did it out of willful wickedness. And therefore, the apostle handles the situations differently. He calls the people to different things. Paul believed that the Jewish Romans would grow out of their weakness in time. And their maturity would allow them to put their old practices away in time. In the meantime, though, it was the responsibility of the differing parties to practice understanding and grace so to protect the unity of the body and the mission of God. You understand? Unity and the mission are at stake. So here's our key point. For people to grow, okay? The issue is growth here. For people to grow, to move forward in their relationship with Christ. Weakness requires time and teaching. That's what should be applied to the weak believer. Time and teaching. And they will come to recognize who they are in Jesus Christ in time and with teaching. And with time, what we mean is patience. And for, for patience to work its perfect work, that we must have a gracious and loving and merciful heart towards people preferring them over ourselves. It's the only way for us to be patient. We have to love people more than ourselves. So for weakness, it requires time and teaching. Now, for the wicked believers, for those who are backslidden, for those who are walking away from truth, wickedness requires admonishment. And the word admonishment means warning. It means warning, to warn one. Okay, There's a boldness that comes with admonishment. Look, you're headed the wrong way. You're on the wrong path. You're distracted from the truth and you know better. So come back to the truth. That's what admonishment is. Wickedness requires admonishment. But listen, both in both situations, whether it's time and teaching or it's admonishment, both require faith. We must have faith that God is going to work his perfect work whether for the weak believer or for the wicked believer. Does this make sense to everyone? I hope I'm not boring you. This was profound to me. So, let's talk about us for a minute. Because all this meat and holidays, this is very hypothetical, isn't it? This is very abstract thinking. We can intellectually say, oh yeah, uh-huh. And yet completely miss this as it applies to us. So let's talk about us for a second. Today we find ourselves in similar conundrums. Among individual believers and church bodies, there are a plethora of topics that reveal weakness and wickedness and the pride of many Christians today. Let's talk about a few. 
Huh? <laughs> dress codes is a great example. Dress codes. Some would suppose, some Christians today, Bible believers, would suppose that to wear jeans to church or a shirt without a collar is a disrespect and affront to God. And those who dress freely, I mean, look around here. We dress pretty freely. Now, if you come to church dressed like a hooker, uh, what? I can't say that? Right? We need to be patient with that. Okay? It'll require time and teaching, right? But everybody dresses different, okay? And around here, we're pretty loose with the dress code, right? Like, so I actually think that when I dress up a little too formally, that I'm actually a hindrance to the gospel. <laughs> I'm being dead serious. If I was to come in here with a tie on, you guys would think something was seriously the matter. <laughs> right? But for those of us who dress freely, we declare that their weaker brethren are prudish and ignorant, which is also wicked. Like, you're so mature that you get it. That you know that Christ doesn't care about whether or not you wear jeans. You've got that knowledge, and yet you're going to look down upon those weaker brethren that struggle with this issue? That they think piety and righteousness is somehow wrapped up in what you wear? Don't be so ju judgmental. Dress is a huge issue in some churches. Music preference. Music preference. Some would say that to have electric instruments in a worship band is somehow evil. That for worship to be sober requires that we use just acoustic instrumentation. I don't know where uh, they find that in Scripture. <laughs> but this is true. This is how some people think, right? This is called traditionalism, right? And, uh, and it's even called legalism, right? We'll talk about this more in a second, but Others would despise those weaker brethren by supposing that their liberated worship is more free and more glorifying to God, which is not true. We know that worship has to do with the heart. We ought to know better. We must forbear one another in our differences and our preferences. Okay? Here's another topic, education. Education. For some, homeschooling is the most profitable form of laying an educational foundation. But for others, they believe that public school provides the most well-rounded environment. There's a difference. There's a difference in opinion. These are preferences. This has nothing to do with the morality of an individual. The morality is in whether or not we choose to be divided over these issues. That's when it becomes an issue of morality. What about ceremony? Some may suggest that to do the Lord's Supper every Sunday is the holiest thing to do, while others say, this do ye as oft as ye drink in remembrance of me. Or perhaps the practice of Lent, or traditionally uh, ecumenical practices or observances in the church. Some from a Protestant background may choose to observe such things and such holidays, and those who were not raised that way might not want to. The issue is whether or not we judge and despise each other based on these, these, these preferences. See, there's a plethora of these issues that, be, that become contentious 
When we impose our personal convictions and our liberties on other people, other God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians, when we impose them on others, there's so many of these issues. What about movies? Whether or not a Christian should go see a PG, PG-13 movie or not. What music should a Christian listen to? Whether or not Christians should vote Republican or Democrat. The list goes on and on and on. And the church is full of division, rooted in the most simple liberties that God has given us. Does this make sense? Is this hitting home yet? If we choose to regard or disregard one another based on personal convictions, cultural differences, and issues of preference, then we are in danger of fatally wounding the unity Christ died to establish. The issue in Rome wasn't as much about their differences in practice, but of the disunity caused by trading judgments. Okay? So in the last portion of our study today, we've got about 10 more minutes together. Yeah? Now, you don't have to look at the clock. Just trust me. There's about 10 minutes left. All right? We're going to address the real issue here. We're going to really hammer this home. Okay, so the real issue. This is our next point. The real issue. The issue for the strong. Most of us want to think of ourselves as the strong ones in the story. I've got it figured out. I have the knowledge. I'm free. I'm set free. You know, the truth is you've got all your own legalisms. You know, all these little things inside of you that function as legalism. And they're dangerous. They can become very, very dangerous. So the issue for the strong, the strong knew their Christian liberty and made use of it, all the while despising the weak who did not. Is the key point up there? Okay, good. All right, don't put it up yet. Everybody was writing. I was worried they weren't hearing me. You're good. Stay right there. Okay? They despised the weak who did not. They should have pitied them and helped them. And afforded them meek and friendly instruction. That's what they should have done. Instead, the more knowledgeable believers trampled upon them as silly and superstitious for scrupling those things which they knew to to be lawful. So here's the key point. Here's the key point. Our knowledge and liberty becomes dangerous to others when we become puffed up. Now by puffed up, this is a very, this is a biblical term here. It's used several times in Scripture. Paul uses it quite a bit. It's a term that refers to the puffing up of one's mind. We would say filled with hot air, right? Okay, this has to do with arrogance. The arrogant believer. And when our knowledge and liberty are used as imposing uh, on other people, then it becomes dangerous. See, the danger is an arrogance that polarizes and damages the unity of Christ. You know, an example of this arises in, in, in the church in Corinth. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians. When the weaker brethren, and this time it's Gentiles who are the weaker. Okay, so check this situation out. When the weaker brethren refused to eat meat purchased in the market that had previously been offered to idols. Remember that? And a bunch of the Gentiles are freaking out. Like, you're going to eat that meat? It was offered to, to wicked idols. And there was, a, there was like... A matter of difference here. Now listen, Paul calls in that case for the mature believers to have patience with these younger believers and not use their liberty as an offense to those who are still growing. 
This is the issue. This happens so much in the church today because the church has become so liberalized that they use their liberties in Christ as an excuse actually to sin. That they choose to use things that they call liberty. To, they, they use them and they flaunt them and what happens is they become a distraction and a, and a stumbling block to weaker Christians who struggle with those things. It happens all the time. Especially at your age, alcohol is a big one. Whether or not you can have alcohol. Now listen to me. We don't have, we're not going to have that conversation today. The call in Scripture is to be sober. The call in Scripture is to be sober. There's no place in Scripture that says you cannot have a glass of wine with your dinner. Okay, now listen to me. If those of you who think that it's okay to drink flaunt it and do so among weaker believers... You are absolutely wicked. You are absolutely wicked, and you are out of line. You are no longer blameless, and you've become a stumbling block to weaker believers. Now, we can squabble about what the Bible says, and you can say, oh, well, when Jesus made wine, he was actually making grape juice. Okay, whatever. We can have that conversation later. But for now, what I want you to recognize is for those of you who feel you have the liberty to have a glass of alcohol, you do so in front of a weaker believer, shame on you. Now, there's all kinds of things like this. We can abuse our liberties very easily. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, you think you know? Good for you. Pat yourself on the back. If any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. What do you want people to associate with you and your liberty? For me, I want my liberty to be an occasion to, to establish a testimony of Jesus Christ. That when people see my life, they see someone who's living for the Almighty God. That is what liberty should promote, is edification and a testimony of righteousness in Christ. Paul's advice to those who knew their liberty in 1 Corinthians was to practice it wisely, never doing anything that might be an occasion to cause other believers to stumble, protecting their testimony. Now let's talk about the, the issue of, for the weak. Those who were weak either did not know or were afraid to engage their Christian liberty. They didn't know about it or they were afraid of it. So the result was they judged those who didn't observe their practices and looked disapprovingly, uh, disapprovingly at others, thinking, supposing that they were carnal. Okay, supposing that they were carnal. They judged them as breakers of the law. So here's the next key point. Our extra-biblical practices, right? our extra-biblical practices, whatever they might be, whatever boundaries and convictions that you have that you believe Christ gave you, okay? whether they have to do with how you eat, how you dress, how you live, how you, how you speak, how you hold yourself, maybe their cultural inclinations, maybe their personal preference, maybe their convictions that God has given you, Whatever they may be, 
These extra biblical practices become dangerous when they are imposed on other people. That's when it becomes legalism. That's when it becomes dangerous. Is that because you wear a suit to church every Sunday, you tell me I have to wear a suit to church every Sunday. That because you refrain from this or that, or you don't practice this or that, that you are somehow more righteous than me. And when you impose that as a law, you're actually casting judgment, and that becomes dangerous. Now again, we're not talking about doctrines. We're not talking about keeping each other accountable to to the text and the intent of God's word. We're talking about extra biblical things. Is everybody with me? This, like, are you hearing this? Yes. The imposition of your personal convictions becomes condemnation as a result of personal piety and uncharitable views of the brethren. It's a lack of charity. For the church in Rome, as well as our church today, these mismanaged differences undoubtedly result in alienation and disunity, and we have to avoid it. So how do we avoid disunity? First of all, we receive the weak. We receive the weak. Uh, Romans 14, verse 1 says, Him that is weak in the faith, the, the chapter starts this way, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Don't be concerned with doubtful uh, arguments that cause doubt and raise doubt in people and cause them to stumble in their faith. Don't even raise those issues. Focus on, on being in faith and unity with the weaker brethren. Take this for a general rule. Spend your zeal in those things wherein you and all the people of God are agreed. And do not dispute about matters that are doubtful or peripheral. It's not worth it. It only clouds our judgment. It only clouds the mission. It only distracts from the real thing. You understand? So that's first. Receive the weak. Two, another way to avoid disunity. Do not despise or judge one another. Romans 14.3 says, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that, re- that eateth. For God hath received him. Paul addresses the faults of both ends of the spectrum. You know, it's common that where there is fault, both sides have a part in mending it. Did you know that? Where there's fault or difference, both parts are equally responsible for mending the differences. So what's your part? Are you doing that? Are you promoting unity? Those who are strong must, uh, must not judge the weak, and those that are weak should not judge the strong. Why? Okay, let's break this down further. Okay, this is, this is the good, I, I'm just now getting to the good part. Okay, so you've got to be patient with me. This is the good part. This is it. This is the part that you walk away with, yeah? Okay, so here we go. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we have this mindset? First, God has received each believer equally. Verse 3, For God hath received him. He called, he called my name, my name, Brandon. He called my name and set me apart and set me on a path. And now I belong to him. Romans 8.31 says, What shall we then say to these? If God be for us, who can be against us? Do not despise and do not judge others because God has beckoned them the same way he has beckoned you and he has received them the same way he has received you. And perhaps you should do the same thing. 
If my God is open to receiving people of all different backgrounds and preferences and differences, maybe I should practice the same thing. Two, or B, I'm sorry, is it B? Yeah, it's B, okay. Don't want to get things mixed up. Outlines are important. B, because they are servants to their own master. They got their own master. They don't need you. They've got one. That's, that's accounted for. That's taken care of. Verse 4, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. So the one that's falling, the weak one, let God help him stand up. That's God's job. God is his master. Who are you to judge another man's servant? Who are you to judge the servant of, of God? Who are you? He or she does not belong to you. As it concerns the disobedience of God's word, then it is a matter to be addressed. But matters of personal conviction are a matter between you and your master, not anyone else. You understand? That's how conviction works. C, because both are accountable to God to live according to their convictions. Both people are. Verse 6 says, He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth thanks. If either the weak or the strong are true believers, then they are accountable directly to Christ. They are accountable to Christ. He that chooses to wear suits to church or to not watch PG-13 movies, or chooses not to have a glass of wine with their meal, and does so without imposing his convictions on others, will stand right in God's eyes according to his own convictions. And for the, for the person who feels at liberty to do the same, they will stand before the living God at the judgment seat and answer for those convictions. Verses 7 through 12 reaffirm that truth. We won't take the time to read that. You can do that in your personal time. D, we live to seek unity. That's what we live to do. It's part of who we are. It's part of our character. That's why it's here. That's why it's part of this study that Paul lays out about what it means to have gospel-centered character. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So Paul provokes us to consider love one toward another in light of our liberties in Christ. Let me read verses 13 through 23. We're almost done here. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. That's the sin, folks. The sin is causing other peoples to fall and to stumble. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So let it be. Let him work that out. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, with your meat, with your liberty, now walkest thou not charitably. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest not thou charitably. You are responsible for making sure that others don't fall at your liberty. Destroy not him with thy meat. For who Christ died? Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It doesn't make any difference. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. 
For he that in the uh, he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one day uh, one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All these things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the, for that man who eateth with offence. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whosoever, or whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's the key, isn't it? Whatever is not done in faith. You hear me? Whatever is not done in faith is sin. Let me tell you a quick story in closing. An example of this, uh, I remember I went back in time and I thought, what's a good example of this? And I remember just before I went to India, I went to India a few years ago with Uriah and Dan and Blade. Okay? That was such a great trip. There's so much to say about that. But <laughs> um, <laughs> before we went, we asked Doug, the missionary there in India, we asked him, Doug, what kind of dress do we need to have to go to India? Because we know that certain places in the world, dress is either acceptable or unacceptable. Right? And so in India, what he said was people don't really wear shorts. It's 1,000 degrees and it's humid all the time. And people wear pants everywhere they go. That is, if you're going to present yourself as respectable. So we said, okay, check. We can do that. So we dressed the way the, the, the locals dressed. We wore khakis and we wore collared shirts. You guys ever watch Office Space? It's basically that is the dress code in India among the Christians. That's how Christians in India dress. And so we dressed respectively to meet those cultural demands because our concern was to edify the brethren. That's what our concern was. Now, Blade, on the other hand, had a dilemma. He had been growing his hair for years. His hair was like down to here. And so he asked Doug, are people going to have a problem with my hair length? Now, Doug very graciously said, they're going to confuse you as a transvestite. You think I'm joking, that's what he said. In the parts of India where we were going, the only men with long hair were transvestite hookers. Okay? So, Blade had a dilemma. So what he did, now, now Doug was very kind about it. Doug represents these weaker brethren. So his job as a representative of the weaker brethren said, hey, look, I want to make you aware since you asked. I'm not going to judge you for this, but just so you know that some people won't understand your long hair. Okay? He represented the weaker brethren. Now, Blade, he represents the stronger brethren who knows that God doesn't really care about that. We're set free from those types of ideas and laws. Chose to cut his hair to prefer the weaker brethren. Now, this is just hair we're talking about. But it represents a truth. It represents a greater truth that the only thing that matters is the gospel. And whatever you do and whatever you are and however you live, if it ever comes in conflict with the spreading of the truth of the gospel or it hinders the unity of the brethren, then you abandon it whole with. Because that's what liberty does. Liberty says it doesn't matter. Liberty doesn't say I can have this, this thing. Liberty says it doesn't matter. That's what liberty says. 
And the question for you is this, as we close, and we'll have the worship team come up. I know that I've gone long. I apologize for that. It takes a lot for me to get through an entire chapter. But listen, ask your heart this this morning. I'm really asking that you, you look in your heart, okay? Don't be distracted with the worship team coming up. Really consider this. Are you seeking unity? Are you seeking unity? Now, there's lots of things that you can ask yourself. Is, are your preferences, are your cultural inclinations, are your personal convictions that God has given you specifically as an individual, have they gotten in the way of how you see your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there, are there any people in this room today that could say that they've abused their liberties and they've been a stumbling block to younger Christians? If at any point your lifestyle has in some way hindered the free flow of the gospel in your life, it's time today to consider unity again. And that's what we're going to do in closing. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving my voice. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the God-fearing people in this room. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we have an opportunity to grow and to mature and to recognize our liberties in you. But God... It's so important for you to continue to impress upon our heart that our liberties are not an occasion to the flesh, that they're not an opportunity for us to seek and do whatever we want to do, that our liberties are intended to set us free from the bondage of this world that we might live for you and seek and save the lost. So God, teach us what that means. Show us how to apply that in our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.